Hello, I'm Zara, a self-published author of young adult and new adult fiction, a publishing grad student at NYU, and an aspiring literary agent. Hi, I'm Kelly, a genre-hopping writer, domestic goddess, which is a fancy way of saying that I am a stay-at-home mom and wife, and I occasionally captain the Hot Mess Express. And this is Writish, the podcast by writers for writers, where we discuss craft and hot topics in the writing community. This season, we're also starting to get into some interviews with other writers and industry professionals, so we're very excited for that and hope you'll enjoy those episodes as much as we did recording them. It is my great pleasure to introduce D.P. Lyle, a doctor who has made a career of crime novels, writing reference books for writers in the genre, and consulting on many renowned shows. His About page on his website, which will be linked in the episode notes, also lists famous writers who have thanked him in their books, and he is the host of the Criminal Mischief podcast on the Authors on the Air Network. Is there anything you would like to add to your introduction, Dr. Lyle? (laughs) No, I think that's great. I, uh... Let's just carry on and get into the questions and have some fun. The first question comes from my co-host, who unfortunately can't be here during today's recording. All's well with her. She's very excited to have you on our podcast. Her question is, what was the first thriller book you fell in love with as a reader? Interesting because, you know, it's hard to define thrillers anymore because there's so much overlap between mystery, thriller, crime fiction, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I remember the book that started me reading books was Journey to the Center of the Earth by Jules Verne. And by today's standards, that would be classified as a thriller because it was a thrilling adventure. And then there was Mysterious Island after that. And that really, I was about 14 years old, and that started me with a lifelong love of reading. That would be the first one. But when you get into modern times, probably the first one was The Day of the Jackal by Frederick Forsyth, which still is one of my favorite all-time books. Just so well done. It's such a thrilling read. Cool. I will definitely have to check that out. The next question is mine. We're called Writish because it's mostly a writing podcast, but the ish kind of catches everything else that we ever talk about. So would you mind telling me and our listeners a little bit more about your medical career as a cardiologist? Well, I trained between Birmingham, where I did medical school and internship, and Houston, Texas, where I did my internal medicine residency and cardiology fellowship at Texas Heart Institute. And then I came to California and I've been out here in Southern California since then practicing for nearly five decades now, you know, and it's, uh, cardiology is a busy business. You know, you got to be ready to go anytime, 24 seven, you get called. It's not, you know, take two aspirin and call me tomorrow. It's, you got to take care of it right here, right now. So For many, many years, it was a very stressful job. I do a lot less now as I've been in the business a long time. And I got younger partners that do most of the the heavyweight stuff. Yeah, but I I was in it at the right time. Cardiology has evolved in dramatic ways over the last few decades. I mean, it's not anywhere near what it was when I was in medical school. It's so much more sophisticated. Um, my co-host wants to know, did you always want to write books or did something happen during your time as a doctor that made you want to? No, I always wanted to. I uh, got a late start at actually doing it, but you know, I grew up in the South. So down there, everybody can tell a story. You know, I always say that in the South, if you can't tell a story, they won't feed you, you know, and there's some truth to that. But, you know, I grew up, everybody I grew up with could tell a story, you know, my parents, my sisters, 
we, we could just always do that. We could always tell stories. That was part of growing up. All my friends could, and we'd sit around and tell stories. But I wasn't sure I could write them. And uh, I guess maybe 25 years ago now, when I was still practicing full time, I said, well, when I retire, you know, I got these stories I want to write. But I said, you know, if not now, when? Just do it. See what happens. You don't know if you can do this. Just try it. So I took some night classes in the extension program at University of California, Irvine, and just started writing. And uh, the rest is, as they say, history. What is more nerve-wracking, working on shows or publishing books? I don't find either one of them nerve-wracking, really. I think they're all fun. The shows, I only work with the writers. I don't, uh, you know, I've been on movie sets before, and they are frighteningly boring. I mean, there's a lot of time spent doing nothing. It's just slow, and I'm not, I'm not one to sit around when things need to be done. Let's just do them, and then let's go do something else. But I work with the writers of both novels and screenplays, and that's fun. Because storytelling is fun and working out the mechanics of a story and what makes sense and how it's going to work and et cetera, et cetera. All that stuff is fun. And so I don't find it nerve wracking at all. I find it playtime. What is the most inaccurate medical or forensic thing you've seen on a show? <laughs> It doesn't have to be a show that you've worked on. There are so many, but, you know, one of them is the speed with which things are done. In, in real life, things take time. But, you know, when you're doing an hour TV drama, you only got like 42, 43 minutes of screen time. The rest of it's commercials. So you have to compact things quite a bit. Probably the two would be that if someone's knocked unconscious and then they're, you know, put in the trunk of a car and two hours later, someone opens the trunk and splashes water on them and they wake up. No. If you're knocked unconscious, you're going to wake up in seconds or minutes. And if you're out more than many minutes, something really bad's going on. And if you're out two hours, something really, really bad's going on. So it doesn't work that way. And the second thing, poisons everybody wants a poison that has a timer <laughs> you know i want to give it to them today and then i want them to you know drop dead uh, suddenly tomorrow afternoon at two o'clock poisons don't have timers you know those that kill quickly work quickly those that kill slowly work slowly good to know what is the biggest flub that you've corrected for a show well uh I think a lot of people have misconceptions about medicine and forensic science, what it can do and what it can't do. I think that the biggest thing is, you know, everybody wants a drug that causes a heart attack and they want it to be, you know, confused as a heart attack. Purest sense of the word of a heart attack, which is a, a myocardial infarction, we call it, or MI in medicine. But it has to do with a clogged artery and, and, and death of heart muscle tissue. That's easily seen on an autopsy. There can be sudden deaths that can mimic heart attacks. And they're usually from changes in heart rhythm. But the average writer doesn't know that. And so they want that there are drugs that can cause arrhythmias and sudden death, though not predictably. But there's not any that can really cause a heart attack. So I think that they use the term heart attack when they really mean something else. But that's okay. You know, that's fine. You know, everybody, I always say everybody's smart in some things and not so smart in other things. <laughs> and everybody's got their skills and everybody's got their knowledge set. And so, you know, I, I happen to have this knowledge set. So I like helping people understand. And a lot of them will say, oh, well, I had that wrong. Yeah, but now you don't. Well, I think to answer that question also, if anybody looks at any of the three question and answer books that I wrote, which are basically questions from writers where they ask story questions. 
And sometimes those story questions indicate that they, they really don't have a handle on what's going on, but a lot of times they do, but they need the nuances. But this, these books kind of give you an insight into how writers think, how they plot their stories. And then the answers, of course, uh, hopefully teach people a lot of stuff and they find them interesting and clever. So, uh, I always recommend those books to people because they're fun and they're easy to read. I need to read the others. <laughs> I've recommended your books to many, many people in my writing community. I appreciate it. They've all been very thankful. <laughs> I think they're going to really like listening to this episode with you. I also did ask our audience for some questions. Okay. So I think some of those questions might be answered in your books too. Cool. But going back to some of the questions that I know are not answered in your books, out of all the novels you've written, do you have a favorite book, child? Uh, you know, I like them all. Uh, I ha Each of my series, and there's been one, two, three, four, four, four and a half, I'd say now. I like all of them for different reasons. But I think, you know, if I had won the first novel that I published was Devil's Playground is my first Samantha Cody book. And that story's always been very special to me. It was a, it was a story I thought about for years before I actually said, you know, if not now, when and started writing, it was one of the first stories I started working on. I, you know, maybe that's, that's the, the youngest child or the oldest child or whichever child, <laughs> but I like, I like them all. Yeah. Very diplomatic parent answer. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what does a typical writing day look like for you? Do you have a set routine? Do you just write whenever you're inspired to? I do not have a set routine. I, and that's on purpose. When I started doing this, I said, do not ever make this a job. You know, this is fun time. I have a job. I don't want another job, you know, and I really admire people who, who write for a living, you know, so they spend their day writing copy for anything from newspapers to, you know, blogs to whatever. And they spend their day writing and then they get home and put the kids to bed and sit down in front of the computer and try to, and write more, write a story. To me, that's a lot. And that would wear me out in a hurry. And so I admire people that are able to do that. So I write when I feel like it, you know, and some days I'll feel like it and I'll sit down and I'll start writing, you know, at six or seven in the morning. And, you know, next thing I know it's noon, you know, and I've written three or four chapters. And sometimes I just say, yeah, you know, I'm going to play golf today or, you know, I'm going to, I got to catch up on my TV cop shows or whatever. I write when I feel like it because I want it to always to stay fresh and fun. If it's not, then I'll go do something else. I like that. Do you think it's easier to write your nonfiction or your fiction, or is it just whatever hits in the moment? You know, I, I think fiction writing is easier because you've got a lot more leeway, but yet it requires more thought time and more living with it time and more percolating time because it's really creating an art, if you will, or the other is, at least the nonfiction I write is more of a science. I always say that they're exactly the same, only different. With nonfiction, you do all the research. You organize it how you're going to organize it, and then you sit down and do the writing. Whereas with fiction, you know just enough to get the story started and maybe some details about setting and, and other things. But I don't get into like heavy, heavy, heavy research then because you can research into a rabbit hole and spend your entire life doing it. And I just start writing, and then I research as I go along. What do I need to know 
uh, to make this plot point work or make this chapter work. And, you know, and it only takes a few minutes to go look that stuff up. It's a lot easier than it used to be. Yeah. I mean, it used to be you had to go to the library or you had, and I got bookshelves full of reference books and you have to go pull them out and go through the indexes. And now uh, what would take you hours you can do in 20 minutes on the computer. Would you say that your writing career has affected your career as a doctor or has it not really touched? Not basically, but you know, the, the, my patients find it clever and cool and uh, they will often bring books in for me to sign and all that. You know, people always ask me, why didn't you use a pen name? And I said, you know, you always got to take blame. You always got to take credit. So just, you know, just do it. And if you, you know, if you're trying to hide what you're doing, then, you know, that's not me. Let, let somebody else do that. Not that there's anything wrong with the pen name. And I can see that there are advantages, but you know, I, it's too schizophrenic for me. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted, I just want to write a story and say, here you go. This is it. <laughs> Would you consider yourself more of a plotter or pantser? Someone who plans out stories before drafting them or just does it? Yeah, great question. Uh, I was, um, the first couple of series I wrote, the Sam stories and the Dub Walker stories, I really, um, I really plotted them out, you know, and I would, but what I found, I would basically write just two or three sentences about each scene. And like James Patterson, I make each scene a chapter. I like to end up with a book with 70 chapters rather than, you know, 12 and they're long. I, th- I think readers digest them more easily. At least I do. So as a reader, I can attest to that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's just a faster read and all that. And you always, you always have room for three or four more pages, but if you look and say, Oh, you got 20 pages in this chapter, I'm tired. I'm going to go to sleep. I'll read it tomorrow. I, I would make outlines, but what I found is that, I would get 70% through the story and I would be bored with the outline. Uh, okay. I got this. I know where it's going. I know what's going to happen. You know, I'm wasting time. I'm anxious to write that first scene. So I just go do it. And then I would find that I would change what I thought anyway. So I'd spend a lot of that effort and a lot of that time, but I ended up changing it anyway. So, because as you get into the story, it unfolds differently than what you thought it was going to unfold. Characters evolve stories evolve, plot lines evolve, and they're not what you initially thought they were. So I quit doing that. And it started with the first Jake Longley book, which was called Deep Six. I basically had a fairly good idea, vague idea, I guess, of who Jake was, what he was going to be. I didn't really know many of the other characters. I thought he'd have a father that was a tough guy and a sidekick that was a big old goof, you know. And I knew I wanted to be comedic. I wanted to be funny. I wanted to get away from the darker stuff, the the, the hardcore thrillers and, and, and uh, procedural books that I'd been writing. And so I had one scene in mind. I just sat down and wrote it. And then the next thing and the next thing and the next thing and the next thing, you know, you know, I've written 40,000 words and it's working and now I know where it's going. And so it ended up plotting itself as I moved along because things have a logical flow. And rather than trying to hammer it all out and put it in a box to start with, I said, let's just write. Well, that's the way I do it now in all my books. I have an idea for a few scenes, but I start and see where it goes. And, you know, pastors will tell you that even though they may not write it down and they may not really outline, you really are, you, as you're writing a scene, you already have the next two or three scenes in mind because you know where this is going to lead. 
And then you start on those and more scenes come to mind. Now I use a program called Scrivener. I love Scrivener. Yeah, Scrivener's fantastic. And it makes plotting and writing dirt simple because it's all right in front of you. And as I'm writing a scene, I'll think, okay, later this has to happen. And I'll go down and open another scene and I'll put two or three sentences in there to say, this is what has to happen because da, 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 da. Okay, fine. Well, that's kind of outlining, but it's not really outlining. But but it is a reminder to let you know that you got to insert that scene because this scene doesn't work without that scene. And then sometimes you'll go back and and, and add scenes and move things. And in Scrivener, it is so dirt simple to do. You know, it's so much better than the, you know, the first 10 books I wrote. <laughs> it's a piece of cake. <laughs> it's so much easier. Yes. We could watch Poetic on Scrivener for a very long time. But we are now at the point where my listeners have been asking questions. Okay. Someone said, I want my character to fake their own death. I know how they do it, but in this day and age with social media, how do they stay dead? Yeah, I mean, it, it is very hard to just drop out of sight, but people do it. You know, the Witness Protection Program does this all the time. <laughs> you know, they create new identities for people. Spies, you know, uh, create legends. And so that they're really somebody else when they're not really that person. You can still disappear. You have to have means. You have to have certain skills. You have to have street smarts and maybe make some changes to yourself. And I don't mean, you know, plastic surgery, but a lot of people get caught who try to do this because, well, you don't really change who you are. You'll have the same hobbies and same habits and the same everything. And so that's often how you get caught. One of the best writers out there is my dear friend and one of the funniest guys on earth. And one of the best writers on is Thomas Perry. And Thomas Perry, if you haven't read him, do. He writes a lot of books that deal with this subject where people have false identities, where people are hiding, and how other people who are just as clever are trying to track them and break those identities. And often these people have layers of identity within identity within identity. It's a, it's a whole fascinating field. But people do disappear. The next question is things we've touched on, but without a direct answer, which we're now asking for is what is a poison, chemical, drug that can be used to slowly poison someone? And then this is obviously the part that they really want for it to be untraceable during an autopsy. Yeah. And what would be the actual cause of death? A huge, huge, huge question. It requires a whole toxicology book or a whole chapter in one of my forensics books to answer. Yeah. Basically. Whether it's something is a, a deadly poison or not is a matter of dose. Everything can be a poison, including water and oxygen. And I don't mean drowning. You can drink enough water to kill yourself. There's a psychiatric disorder called uh, uh, polydipsia where people drink and drink and drink and drink. And basically you wash all the sodium out of your bloodstream. And the next thing you know, your brain swells, you have a seizure and you die. You go into a coma and you die. Uh, oxygen, 100% oxygen destroys your lungs. Uh, the lungs can't tolerate 100% oxygen for very long. And so anything is a poison. So if something is homeopathic, as we say, which means it doesn't really do anything because homeo means same and pathic means disease. So it doesn't change the disease. Kind of like homeostasis means things don't change. So that's the background noise. Something is a drug if it is given to protect a, is it, it begin to treat or prevent 
a medical condition. And then something becomes a toxin if the level builds up enough that it makes you sick. And then something becomes a poison if it builds up more and it kills you. And each poison has its really own way of killing you. Uh, and so it would depend upon that. But back to the original question, what can be given slowly over time? I'm going to tell you, arsenic still works. You know, it's been known as the queen of poisons because it's been around for thousands of years. Arsenic's been used for by everybody everywhere. And what it does is it mimics neurological diseases because you get numbness and tingling and weakness and, and headaches and visual problems. And it, it, it's disguised as gastrointestinal disease because you get nauseated and vomiting and diarrhea and all these horrible stomach cramps and all these things. So people don't think poisoning. You know, when that and a small dose every day builds up and the person gets sicker and sicker and sicker and dies. And a lot of people have died from that. And there was never an autopsy done. So it was never discovered. And there's been many cases out there where now two or three people die like that. And they start saying, oh, wait a minute, something's going on here. And they go back and exhume the bodies. And lo and behold, they got arsenic in them. It is very hard to find anything that can't be found if it's looked for, because each chemical has its own individual structure. If its structure was different, it would be a different chemical. It's as simple as that. So uh, arsenic is arsenic is arsenic is arsenic. Oxygen is oxygen. It doesn't change. So they can find that stuff. There's sophisticated, you know, gas chromatography and, and uh, mass spectroscopy can, can identify any substance if it's found. Some are more difficult. For many years, succinylcholine was very hard to find, and it was the, 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 the science behind the famous Carl Coppolino case from many, many decades ago, and people can look that up, Carl Coppolino, famous case. But if it's not looked for, you're not going to find it, and then if it's hard to test for, it's expensive. And so in a practical matter, uh, all these uh, crime labs are not like you see on TV. They have budgets. So if you're worried about your story and something not being found, make it look like something else. Make it not be looked for either through ignorance, incompetence, or corruption, or put it in a small town where things are written off all the time because they don't have the sophistication or the budget to really dig into things. So if you set your story in a small town, you have a lot more leeway. Okay, the next two I have are basically how long can someone survive after blank? Okay. <laughs> so the first one is while being burned alive before bleeding out from a knife wound. In this instance, I'm assuming the knife has been pulled out and is not plugging the wound. Right. Well, most of the bleeding is internal anyway. So, But let's start with the burn. You know, you could die in seconds, minutes, or it could take many, many, many minutes. You know, it's a horrible way to die. And a lot of people get severely burned and they survive the initial uh, insult. And then they end up in a burn unit and getting infected and they may live for months before they die. So it can take time. And remember, that's an interesting nuance. So someone is, you know, set on fire and the house fire and they're burned and all that. Uh, all right, so first of all, they have a suspect, and what are they charging with? They charge him with arson and assault and, you know, these kinds of things. Well, let's say the person lives for six months and then dies. Guess what? Now they've upgraded those charges to murder or at least some form of homicide. And so because now the person's died, that changes things. So burning's a terrible way to die, and it usually happens quickly. 
Unfortunately, I think most people succumb to carbon monoxide accumulation and lack of oxygen and go into a coma before they really, you know, become a crispy critter. But it's still terrible. It's still a terrible way to die. The the survivors of that are in horrible pain, horrible pain. So, you know, I took care of many of them in medical school on the burn service. It, uh, it, it, uh, don't do that now, thank goodness, because it's tough. And the other question had to do with a stab wound. Yes. Well, it's like property, location, location, location. <laughs> you know, if you are, let's say your throat is cut or stabbed and you hit the carotid artery, the two carotid arteries that you can feel them, they're on either side of your larynx, your, your voice box your Adam's apple, and you can feel them bumping in there. 95% of the blood to the brain goes through those two arteries. So if you lacerate one of them, it bleeds. I mean, and it will bleed. It will spurt many, many, many feet because it's right there. The heart's pumping it. it. It will fly against the wall. Spatter pattern is, you know, these big arcing loops of, of blood. You can lose consciousness in a matter of seconds, and then you can die shortly thereafter. At the other end of the spectrum, you're stabbed in the abdomen and it just hits some of the, what we call mesenteric arteries or, uh, or, or, or renal artery, kidney artery, or an artery that's not that big, or it just, you know, damages the tissues and they keep bleeding. It can take days to bleed to death. It can go very slow, especially if you're just injuring tissues internally. And there's no external bleeding, really. There's a little around the knife wound, but it's not a lot. You know, I've used uh, in my books, uh, my, my Kane Harper series, uh, Kane is a, a trained assassin, so to speak. He will, and he's an expert with knives. He will, he will take somebody down and basically just cut their, their femoral artery which is the artery that supplies blood to the leg. And it's about as big as your thumb. And you cut that, it will bleed like crazy. And, and he's, he's bled characters out <laughs> <laughs> that way. So it's, again, it's location, location, location. And uh, luck is part of everything. How much weight do you need to weigh down a dead body to the bottom of a lake so that it doesn't float back up? So I'm assuming, obviously, you have to think about the size of the lake and the size of the body. But in general, what would your answer be? Well, not that much initially, for sure. You know, 20, 30 pounds to do. I mean, think about a weight belt for divers. You know, they have a buoyancy compensator, but they have a weight belt. And so they will release air from their BC vest. And that will allow them to sink. And be, and the weight belt is, eh, it's probably a dozen pounds. You wear it around your wear it around your waist at lead weights. It could be 20 pounds. I don't really know. It's been so long since I scuba dived. I saw Jaws. I don't do that anymore. <laughs> so, uh, you know, 20, 30 pounds, if you just, you know, wrap somebody up in chains or add metal weights to them or, or any kind of weight, you know, even heavy ropes that are soaked with water can do it. And so they can sink to the bottom. And then the dynamic changes because as the body decays, and decay comes from inside out. It's the bacteria in the GI tract, the gastrointestinal tract, that start the decay. It's not the bacteria around. Remember, the skin is used to deflect bacteria. And so it's not the bacteria from the environment that decays bodies. It comes from inside. So as that does, it creates gas, and the belly will swell, and, and the tissues will start developing air within them. And now the body becomes buoyant. How quickly that happens depends mostly on the water temperature. In fact, almost all on the water temperature. If you take a corpse and throw it in the water and it sinks, uh, as they tend to do, almost all corpses will sink initially, not all, but most. 
and you're in a lake in Louisiana in August, well, within 24 hours, it's decayed enough that it floats to the surface, 48, 72 for sure. But if you throw it in an ice cold lake, like Lake Tahoe, you know, up in the Sierra Nevada mountains or the Colorado mountains, where the water temperature is very low, it may be months. You may remember the famous Lacey Peterson and Scott Peterson case out here on the West Coast. You know, it got national attention. And Scott basically weighted her down with concrete weights strapped to her extremities and around her neck and threw her off the boat in the San Francisco Bay. Well, she didn't pop up for like three months. And when she did, it decayed enough that she had lost her arms and legs. They had basically decayed away in her head and only her torso came up. But because it was weighted down and it had to be enough time for the body to separate into those parts and it had to get buoyant enough to pop up to the surface and the currents took it to the shore. Her unborn child, Connor, also was found nearby. He was not inside her anymore because of a coffin birth. And what that means is if the baby's far enough along, as the gas accumulates in the abdomen, the pressure rises and that will push the uterus and press it and the baby will be born. And that's what happened with Connor. This is gruesome stuff, but you know, you want to write crime fiction, welcome to the world. And so that took months. So it depends. It depends on timing, location, et cetera, et cetera. I can't believe how much stuff you keep in your head on a regular basis to be able to answer these questions off the cuff. <laughs> but wow, am I glad that you do. Well, it's what I do. <laughs> Another question from a listener. If a character is strangled to death and stabbed repeatedly... How is it determined that the strangulation was the cause of death and not the stabbing? Good question. And the simple answer, when someone's strangled, there's always bruise marks left. Even if they're not visible on the surface at the time, they will appear. Usually they're there very quickly because you have to compress the neck enough to cut off the carotid arteries and blood supply to the brain. It's not from lack of breathing. It's from lack of blood flow to the brain that people are strangled to death. It always leaves bruising and it also leaves internal bruising in the muscles, the strap muscles of the neck. So all of that is, is visible. So now the person's dead and they say, oh, well, let's make it look like, you know, somebody stabbed Charlie. So they take a knife and stab him a few times. Well, here's the problem. Dead people don't bleed. <laughs> and so these stab wounds would not have any bleeding around them. And a medical examiner would know that the person was dead by the time they were stabbed. Remember, bleeding comes because blood is rushing into the area or oozing into the area where the, well, that requires blood flow. And for blood flow to happen, it requires that the heart is beating. So if you stab a dead person, it doesn't bleed. Very true. We are nearing the end of our questions, but this next one is our final listener-submitted question. What is touch DNA, and how can a murderer not leave any of it behind? And I promise that, at least from my part, I know these people to be writers. <laughs> yeah, okay, I know. No. When they asked me, I was taking it, they are writers. <laughs> sure. This stuff's all on TV and on the internet anyway. Okay. DNA back in the day, you know, it, it didn't, it, it wasn't created. DNA profiling wasn't created until the early 80s, 83, 84 by, by Sir Alec Jeffers. And then it didn't enter the courtroom, in other words, become a legal method until 1987. So it's been around a while. 
But back in that day, you had to have a pretty large size because of the methods that were used. You had to have a lot of material to work with. Well, then that all changed in the 90s. And then we came up with PCR and uh, what's called short tandem repeats or STRs. I won't get into the details. It's all in my books. If people really are interested in it, it's also on the internet. But what that allowed is smaller sample sizes. Theoretically, a single cell. You could amplify or through PCR, you could amplify it and make a whole room full of DNA that was identical just from one, one strand of DNA. So now we had a method that small amounts of usable DNA could, could be used in a, in a case and be used to, to create a profile. Well, it turns out that when you touch something, you leave something behind. Fingerprints are basically the oils and grime and dirt and, and dead tissue cells that people leave on a window or a glass or a bottle or the car door handle or wherever. And that oily, dirty, grimy stuff that's on our fingers all the time ends up leaving an imprint. Well, guess what else it does? It leaves behind the oils and dirts and grime and skin cells. And so they can take that thing, and after they get the pattern, they can actually swab it, find some skin cells, amplify it, and develop a DNA profile. So that's called touch DNA. It only requires you to touch it. If you eat some famous case called the Brown's Chicken case, it was up in, I think, Ohio, Indiana, something like that, in the Midwest. And these guys come in, and the, the place at the church, this Brown's Chicken's getting ready to close. So they ordered something to eat while they're waiting for the other customers because they came in there to rob the place. And then they were the last ones to leave. Well, they took these people back in the back room, shot and killed all of them, took all the money and left. Well, the police saw a freshly eaten basket of chicken and they took the chicken and swabbed it for DNA and found the DNA of one of the perpetrators uh, just from him having eaten the chicken and leaving behind saliva and stuff. So touch DNA comes from the fingerprints is where it really was, but it can really, you can brush up against something. You can wear a mask and the inside of that mask will have your DNA in it. You can take gloves inside of those gloves will have your DNA in it. You can wear rubber gloves, which, you know, surgical gloves, which is what you recommend if you don't want to leave all these prints and stuff behind. But if they find those gloves, those gloves will have your DNA inside. So a single skin cell can do you in. So it's best just to read about this stuff than actually do it. <laughs> of course, of course. Yes, yes. <laughs> What would you like to see more of in the crime thriller genre? I like private investigators and I like regular folk doing stuff. Uh, I do love, you know, police procedurals and all of that. See, I, I don't write medical thrillers because number one, I live with it all the time. And number two, there are so many rules <laughs> and so much stuff you got to do and so many things you got to explain and to make a, a real story. And I find that, you know, physicians don't panic easily and you want your character to panic at some point in time. <laughs> you want them to think, oh my God, this is awful. I'll never get out of this. And physicians are trained like not to panic a whole lot. And cops are the same way. They have so many rules and regulations and procedures and so much stuff on their side, but there's also a lot of stuff that they can't do because they are of authority. And so that, that's kind of restrictive. And a lot of people are doing that. A lot of people are doing that kind of stuff. But private investigators and regular folks who get involved in trying to solve a crime, automatically they got certain hurdles that they've got to overcome. 
in the case of a private investigator, there's a lot of things they can do that the cops can't do. But they also don't have the resources that cops have available. So it's a double-edged sword. But I especially like someone who I'm going to solve this case, and then they're neither qualified, trained, or very good at it, you know, <laughs> but they manage to muddle through. And that's my character, Jake Longley's kind of that way. I call him a reluctant PI because his dad drags him into these cases all the time, kicking and screaming. And Jake not only doesn't want to do this, he's not very good at it. And so consequently, it creates a lot of comedic tension. Uh, and he stumbles through, but always the good guys win and the bad guys lose. You know? And so I kind of like that dynamic. So I, I, I'd like to see more and more and more of that, either private investigators or private people solving crimes or making things happen so that a crime is solved. It's more personal. Nancy Drew is what got me into um, yeah. love the mystery genre. So Exactly. Yeah, that's a classic example. Our final question is, what advice would you give to writers trying to get into the genre? Read. You know, I tell people that medicine is an apprenticeship. You spend two years, you know, grinding through these massive books and learning all this science and all that stuff. And then suddenly your junior year, they turn you loose on real people. You know, <laughs> it's a frightening first day. <laughs> But and you got a lot of science in your head, but you don't have any practical knowledge. But what, what do you do? As a student, you hang out with the intern and your residence and your attending man, and you learn from them. You learn how to do things. You learn how to solve problems. You learn how to think about things. You learn what things look like, what works, what doesn't work, what you should do, how you should do it. And you learn it by, you know, and then once you do, you remember it. And then you go teach it to somebody else. And that's kind of how uh, medicine has been throughout forever. Writing is the same way. You know, you can take writing classes, you know, you can get an MFA, you can do all that stuff. But at the end of the day, you have to write. And I think if you want to write crime fiction, read crime fiction. There is your apprenticeship. There is where you learn. Once you start writing, you will read novels totally differently than you ever did before. You won't read them so much for pleasure or even for the story, you will read them for how was this constructed? How did this person do this? I'm curious. I want to be able to do this. And so read, 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 and write, 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 write. You have to be able to do that. But the single most important advice I can give a writer, and I, I, I learned it. It took a long time. It took a few novels to learn it. But once you learn it, it changes everything. And I wish I'd learned it from Jump Street. It is your voice. Tell your story your way. Get out of the way. Don't worry about the rules. You know, Somerset Mom said there's three rules to writing. Unfortunately, no one remembers them. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the rules are made to be broken. The key is spin a good yarn. Tell the story. Get out of the way. Don't edit it. Don't worry if the writing's good, bad, or indifferent. Nobody's going to read that anyway. So you can always go back and fix it. But read and write and write and tell it your way. Get out of the way and tell the story. Remember, everybody says, well, yeah, I'm not a story. There's only two stories. Somebody comes, somebody goes. That's it. Somebody, something, some person, some situation comes into a character's life, knocks it off balance, and the story is about them trying to regain balance. 
or that character goes somewhere and gets involved in something that they don't understand and they got to figure out what's going on and solve some problem. And Star Wars is a classic example. You know, Luke was just working on his uncle's farm and, you know, on this crazy planet. Okay, fine. And these droids show up and they take him to meet Obi-Wan Kenobi. So somebody came into his life and changed it dramatically. And then he actually goes somewhere and he goes into a world that he has no clue what's really going on and he has to figure it out. So it's actually both types of stories and that's what makes it clever. So keep it simple and tell your story and tell it quickly, get it out and then go back and fix it. So have the confidence to tell your story your way. That was beautifully put. Thank you so much for being here today. I can't express what an honor and a pleasure it has been to interview you. Your website and your podcast will be linked down below, but is there any final thoughts you would like to give to our listeners? No, just uh, if you want to write, write and make it fun, you know, and uh, because remember, it's, it's supposed to be fun. It's playtime. Where else can you get up early in the morning, get a cup of coffee, sit in your pajamas and play with your imaginary friends? You know, and that that's really what it's all about. And and so enjoy it. This is the Writish Podcast, and we'll be back with another episode next week when we'll be interviewing Lauren Hesse, my advanced social media marketing professor at NYU Center for Publishing and the social media director of Little Brown Books.